Welcome to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Tim Peterson, Senior Media Editor at Digiday. And I'm Kaylee Barber, Senior Reporter. So this week is the second in a four-part series that Kaylee and I have put together on the evolving roles of content creators. These are individuals who have built large followings online and become their own independent media companies. While content creators typically brings the idea of a YouTuber to mind or maybe a TikToker to mind, um, we're seeing that content creators are really, you know, even journalists who are getting into the world of Substack, like Emily Atkin, who created the heated Substack newsletter. Um, and I got to speak with her today, and uh, she started out as a journalist. Um, she, you know, worked for media companies and decided that she wanted to take matters into her own hands and kind of take on the role of not just a writer, but an editor, a publisher, an accountant, an artist. Um, she's doing it all. And she's definitely the the purest term of content creator at this point. Substack author, that's you know become something of a trend where I feel like end of last year, there was kind of a running joke in media circles that anyone who's you know leaving a, a job in journalism was jumping over to Substack or was on the verge of jumping over Substack. But Emily was pretty early to Substack, right? Yeah, she was. Um, She's been at it for over a year now. She'll she'll map out the dates um, for you in a second. But she was, I think, one of the examples of why now that is a trend to leave journalism um, in the quote-unquote traditional sense of working at a a publisher and joining Substack. She, I think, was one of the success stories that led a lot of others to follow in her footsteps. And, um, you know, that's impressive. It's starting a, a massive trend. Like what stood out to you most about the conversation with Emily and what her experience has been either on Substack or, you know, just before she joined Substack when she was, uh, in, I guess, regular journalism or whatever form of journalism that you and I are in? Yeah. Um, well, I think the most interesting thing is um, her aversion to advertising. Um, she makes it very clear in this conversation that advertising revenue is not something that she's going to consider as part of a revenue stream. And I don't think there's a single traditional media company that could say the same. Um, so that's something that I think is a really kind of key point of this conversation. As an individual creator, you kind of get to set those limitations. Good to have freedom, but also good to have your own boundaries and have the freedom to set your boundaries. Sounds nice. Sounds like a great conversation. So Kaylee, I'll let you take it away with Emily. Thanks so much for being on today, Emily. Thank you for having me. So you ventured out to Substack. uh, It was about a year and a half ago now. Is that right? Yeah, I started uh, early September 2019. What appealed to you about joining Substack at that point? Because it was a rather new platform, right? It was new. A lot of people thought that I was being stupid, <laughs> actually. Oh, no. I mean, I was quitting a pretty established job at a magazine. Um, things, you know, from the outside seemed to be going well. And, and, you know, they were. I just, I had ambitions to do things that were more, I guess, uh, more me. So, mm-hmm. um but yeah, it was certainly new. Uh, there was not a lot of there was not a lot of um, role models to look at in this space. But fortunately, I had one um, who was Judd Legum of the newsletter Popular Information, which is still a really popular newsletter. He encouraged me to do it, um, and so I did. Mm-hmm. 
That's awesome. I guess in making that leap, did you have the idea for Heated kind of like rolling around in your mind for a while before you knew what platform you would take it to? Or I, I guess, how did you get your idea that you were willing to leave your job for? I definitely did not have the idea beforehand. I sort of had the idea that I wanted to do something different or I was at the place in my job at the time, I was working at the New Republic, where I wanted to make a move. Um, And I didn't know exactly what that move would be. And I just started considering my options, looking at job openings, and nothing was really speaking to me. Even the good jobs that I felt maybe I had a chance to get, I started thinking to myself, well, is that really what I want? Um, And meanwhile, I had Judd in my other ear saying, you should start a newsletter. You could start your own thing. And more and more, as I weighed my options, that that seemed like, that was what made me the most excited, honestly. I was trying to trust what what just felt like, even if it was the riskiest thing, like what would be the funnest thing? What would be the thing that brought me the most joy and sort of sense of purpose? And that's where the idea came from. If I could create anything, what would I create? And and that's where the idea for Heated came from. You mentioned that you have been in contact with some other substackers, but do you find that like when you're talking to people who are also making that leap to um, substack that that's kind of the path, like they want to make a change, but they don't really see the job opening that's like appealing to them or um, like, I don't know, is that, do you feel like your story is kind of like a common one um, in that area? <laughs> the, it's common in that um, in that people reach out to me because they're unhappy at their jobs. They're unhappy doing the work that they've been made to do at their jobs and and they want to just do the work that they want to do and that's an option for it. Um, that's I think every journalist struggles with that at some point. Um, it's just but I, I do think it does say something about where we are in, as a news industry is that many people who got into news, you know, t- to pursue their passion of journalism because nobody gets into journalism for the money um, or the power because it's everyone hates you and you make no money. Um, if like the institutions are not fostering the passion, then there's a lot of people who are unhappy and looking to do their own thing. So I think it says something about about how mainstream news institutions at this moment like aren't always helping their uh, reporters do what they really feel that they want to do. I guess I'm curious about how the first few months went for you. Um, what, I guess, in quitting your job to do this, like what were kind of the steps that you had to take to get to the point where the ball was rolling, you were doing your daily content. Um, you know, I guess how much of a time period did that take and, and what were some of the steps in that um, in that path? Well, that question sort of assumes that I've figured stuff out. <laughs> like how long did it take for me to get into a groove and figure things out? I'm like, mm, <laughs> I don't know that that's, that that's stopped, that like I ever figured it out. I mean, the, I would say the first few months were definitely a like a blur, which is a cliche way to describe it. But I do think that I sort of blacked out for three months. Um, 
I was just I so much pressure on myself because if it didn't work, the way that the way that we structured it, um, the way that I structured it was that the first three months of the newsletter were going to be free. I wasn't even going to give people the option to pay me, and people could see if they liked it for three months, and then I would put up a periodic paywall after that, um, and if people liked it enough to want to continue getting it four times a week, um, then they could put up three months later. And so those first three months, I mean, every single newsletter I felt like was life or death for my future. Um, and so I definitely put a lot of pressure on myself. Um, I spent a lot of time, um, on every single one. Um, and that was absolutely unsustainable, just the way that I was the way that I was killing myself uh, for it. I remember I told a bunch of my friends at the time, look, and this was pre-pandemic, so we could, this was when we could do things and go places. And, you know, you'd go, you, I, you had a social life. Um, and so I remember telling my friends, like, look, guys, please forgive me for the next few months. I'm going to be, like, pretty emotionally unavailable, physically unavailable, like, we just got to get through this time. And, and then after the paywall goes up, I'll be... I'll be a little, I'll be a little better. And that, that definitely did happen. I definitely was kind of gone for three months. Um, and then, but it still, even after that, it still didn't, it, it didn't slow down. You know, committing to a four day a week newsletter was something I was like, oh, of course I can do that. I've been writing a story a day, you know, on average pretty much for the last, 10 years. Of course I can still do that. Not the same. It's not the same when you're the reporter, editor, marketer, um, accountant, um, strategist, designer. Like That's not true. So um, I've definitely gotten to a place where I can manage my own workload a bit more now, but I still am a constant over committer. I am a, I am a optimist in the most destructive sense, uh, that I think I can get a lot done and, and can't. And it's something, you know, I, I still struggle with, but fortunately I think the, a year and a half with the newsletter community, and that's the best part of it is being a community. It's like, they sort of understand me. <laughs> I'm not, it's not a publication where like, I'm some amalgamous part of this big institution. It's like, it's just me. And so if I promise something and don't deliver it and I say, sorry, I need another day, everyone's like, that's cool. Just take another day. So the first three months you had it free for everyone. Um, how did you decide like three months was a good kind of testing period um, to kind of get people interested enough to then pay like three months later? Like what did you have like other kind of like newsletter um, writers and authors kind of giving you that advice that three months is a good time period or yep. was that just kind of like a... Yeah, no, uh, Substack, yeah. that's what Substack recommended. That's what Judd had done. It. it had worked really well for him. And, and what it did was it allowed for a large influx of people to sign up at once, right? Um, mm-hmm. And instead of just maybe a, a trickle over time, it, it allowed me to, to see really what the interest was going to be. But three months was not arbitrary decision on my part. That was just the recommended thing that Substack had said for me. And I was like, all right. I'll have other questions around like your subscribers and your growth strategy. I think that's a really like interesting area as well. But for the content side of things, you mentioned that you're the writer, you're the editor, you're the designer, you're doing it all. Um, what 
like how do you identify what will make like a good story or um you know uh, what will make a good edition of the newsletter and what all i guess goes into producing that um you know one email well i think this is actually my favorite part about having a newsletter and really being the boss of my own reporting life is that now i can just focus on what interests me. I know that it's a good edition of the newsletter if something will make a good story for the newsletter if I, it interests me, if I think mm-hmm. it's fascinating. Because the people that buy in to the newsletter, whether with actual money or just they sign up you know, with their email address for free, um, what they're buying into is my perspective and as a journalist and, you know, what I find interesting and important. Um, so that freedom is, is really great. I mean, sometimes it, <laughs> sometimes you shoot yourself in the foot because you find too many things interesting and you, you find something interesting that takes too long to do. Um, and that's part of the learning process for sure. But, um, I would say it's, it's now come down to like, okay, is it, Fascinating to me, number one. I try to go by the um, the principle of journalism is something somebody else doesn't want published and everything else is just PR. So is it going to make someone annoyed that it exists? Um, that's a big one. And then is it accomplishable? <laughs> Can I say something original or, or present some information that's original in it in the amount of time that I have to get it out? Um, the, the newsletter publishes four days a week. I, I work dedicated five days a week. So some, sometimes I have, uh, time to spend a couple days on an edition and sometimes I don't. Um, and obviously sometimes I'll work on the days I'm not supposed to work, but I try not to do that. Um, but yeah, you know, sometimes I'll get a report that looks great and I only have to do a couple hours of it and make one or two phone calls. And sometimes more often than not, um, it's something that is a weirdly meticulous research project and have to go through a lot of campaign filings and, um, it's just your basic reporting process. I don't think that, I don't think that process wise, it's much different than any other newsroom job other than it's my decision, not an editor's. So the reporting side of things, to your point, you could take a couple days sometimes, but other times you just kind of have to like get it done for the for the day. Um, how many hours do you have to add on top of that to do the editing and do the like design of it all and and then, you know, focus on the other areas of the business, like marketing it and doing all of that? Like how, I guess, how many hours do you think you are dedicating in a week to making your brand grow and and thrive? Oh God. I think that if I tracked it, I would, I would not like the tracking. So I do not track it, but, um, I would say that it definitely adds at least another hour to the day always. I mean, but I do think that part of being like a modern journalist in a newsroom is marketing. So the marketing side has come fairly easy. Um, I remember when I started in journalism, that was like when Twitter was just sort of getting off of the ground and there was all this conversation about how you know journalists not only had to be the producers of the work but the marketers of their work and the personality behind the work and um you know if you could get a good tweet then you could you know your tweet for your story could do better than the publication's tweet for the story right and so you sort of 
I think if you've come up in this era of journalists in the last 10 years, you've had to figure out how to be a marketer for yourself either way. So part of it, that, that like marketing part, um, it's just different now because it's instead of being like, read my story, I'm like, read my story and sign up. So maybe it's like an extra, I don't know. It's not even extra time. It's definitely extra mental energy because it's a different type of, of research. So I'd say maybe, maybe an extra two hours a week or something on that. Um, but that definitely makes it easier for like this crop of journalists to do something like this. The business part is that varies because there are some weeks when I don't do anything business related at all. And then there are some weeks when I'm like, crap, I have to file quarterly taxes at some point. And then I'm uh, on the phone with an accountant and I'm like trying to put together my spreadsheets and stuff like that. And that's like, that can be an extra, that can be an extra full friggin' day of work one day. Um, so it, it's, it all varies. I would say it adds on average a few hours a week. Um, the designing stuff, it's, that's also project-based at, that, that's, that's also like front-loaded work because, the cool thing about newsletters is that they're con- they're kind of like the same format every single time. So I have a thing that I've already designed that goes on the bottom, a thing that goes on the top, a way to um, a way to organize things like visual imagery, and then like today I had to make a six photo collage for the top of something, and that took an extra I don't know thirty minutes just to download the photos and put put it together and. All that stuff. Um, but then some days I just download a Getty image and slap it on the top of the article like any other day. So it, it all really just depends. I mean, I spent three hours the other day making a stupid flyer for um, a like YouTube Live event that I'm doing, but that didn't have to happen. Like I didn't need to spend that long on the flyer. I just, there was nobody there to tell me to stop. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. For the marketing thing, you talked a lot about like Twitter and, and you know how tweets can kind of drive um, reading and then signing up. Is that like, have you seen the most success of growing your subscriber base through Twitter and, and social platforms? Or um, I guess like, are you thinking about any other ways of marketing? I have wanted since the beginning to rely as much as I can on earned media. Um, I don't want to pay for advertising. I don't like, you know, either it be with, whether it be for like sponsored posts on social media sites or, you know, hiring a PR person to go out and, um, try and get me interviews or something like that. Um, I've wanted it to be as natural as possible just because I have a sort of romanticized notion of journalism and what it's supposed to be and how it's supposed to be successful uh, due to lots of mentors in the past who have had similar romanticized idealistic notions of journalism and democracy and all that. So um, Mm -hmm. I've just relied on, you know, my own tweets, uh, putting the work out there. Um, I've made it Instagram, you know, (laughs) that I sometimes post things on and um, I just sort of wait for people to come to me. I, I didn't even, I, I didn't even ask like journalists to promote it when I came out and announced it. I just like sort of hoped pe- when I announced it, people would be like, 
Yeah, sign up for that. You should totally sign up for that. And that, you know, I, I was lucky enough to for that to work. Um, but I have definitely leaned a lot on Twitter. And it's been a successful strategy for me just because I think that I leaned into the work as the best marketer of it. So I spent, I've always spent most of my time on the actual content of the newsletter. And then I put, just put the content out there, describe the content and hope that it works. And that's really how it's happened for me. Um, when I start, when I started the newsletter, you know, I had been in journalism. I'd been working in DC at least at that time for about six years. Um, and then a few years before that in New York as a journalist. Um, so I was like mid-career and I had maybe like 15,000 Twitter followers, you know, like pretty good, moderate. Um, it wasn't like, but you know, it wasn't your Matt Iglesias, Glenn Greenwald, all these other big substackers that just started and shot up to the top. Um, and then since then, you know, in the last year and a half, it's absolutely exploded. And I think that that is just because the newsletter allows me to be the type of journalist I want to be. It allows me to do the type of work I want to do. I think I have like 55, 56,000 Twitter followers now um, and 40,000 subscribers to the newsletter, uh, free subscribers. So it that's a testament not to marketing, I don't think, but a testament to the newsletter. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back. I did want to ask about uh, your subscribers. So you said you have 40,000 um, free subscribers right now. Um, are you disclosing at all how many paid subscribers you have or, or what portion of them are? Um, I guess those are all free. So do you have? Yeah, um, it's totally fine. I, I maintain, I don't check it every day because otherwise I would go insane. Um, I don't know if you remember or if you guys use um, like view track chart beat or any of that stuff to track how many people are on your story at a given yeah. time. Um, I remember yep. I, you know, I was, I'm the type of person that was super obsessed with that when I was at news organizations and I've just decided no chart beats, um, even with revenue at a certain point, I'm not going to, I'm not going to look every single day. I'm not going to obsess over that stuff, but I, I do, I found new ways, things to obsess over. My conversion rates, uh, stays around the, um, eight to 12% rate. I think right now it's around 10. Um, but that's the conversion rate that you <clears throat> want to see. And as long as it's staying in that percentage range, um, I am happy and mm-hmm. I don't obsess. And so right now that's that's where I'm at. And that's the conversion of free to paid subscribers? Yes. Got it. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm curious, like the pricing model that I took a look at before um, we jumped on here, you have like a $75 annual, $8 monthly, $200 founding uh, $200 founding member levels. Are those also kind of like the Substack recommended or how did you kind of come to that um, pricing model? Uh, that one was really, I wish that I had like a better rationale to tell you about it. I just sort of saw other newsletters and how mm-hmm. much they were charging and I compared what I thought the work of mine was valued at compared to theirs. Like how much work were they putting into it? Um, versus how much work was I putting into this one? And I valued it. I mean, I valued it. Those prices are the high prices, right? I, I offer discounts about four times a year. Um, so Got it. I'll 
I'll make the 75 down to about 50 a year and I'll make the um I'll make the $8 down to about $6 a month. Um cuz I recognize that $75 a year can be a lot, but I do think that that's, you know, that's the high end of what it's worth. Yeah, I mean that was just honestly, I don't know. I threw a number out there and sometimes it goes lower. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I feel like creating a pricing model, especially when you have a business that's very much like dependent on um, recurring revenue and things like that. Like it's it's interesting hearing about the process because it, it like this platform is very new and I feel like everyone on it is still trying to figure out what that is. Like um, I've seen a few a few different ranges, but like I don't know. I think that that's interesting. Definitely. I mean, people um, people want to act like they. Uh, know everything about what they're going to do and that they have a rationale for everything they do before they do it when they start a new venture. Um, and I think that what I've learned is that that's total BS. Uh, nobody <laughs> knows what they're doing. They like to act to know what they're doing. And it's actually way more helpful if you admit to people on podcasts like yours that you didn't know and you just said, uh, uh, I'll try this. And you know, it either works or it doesn't work. I mean, sometimes I wish that I, I'm happy that I went high on the price so that I can, it allows me the opportunity to offer lower pricing discounts. That's why I offer discounts all the time. Um, but, but what if I had gone too low? You know, if I had gone too low and I'm like, God, I wish I could have, I wish I could raise the price, but now it's so much harder to raise the price than to lower it. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm definitely happy with that decision, but I would be lying if I said like, I thought about it in any meaningful way other than, I don't know, that seems good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's completely fair. Um, I would do the exact same thing if I was in your shoes too. So I put so much sense. more thought, like I said earlier, I, I put the majority of my thought into what's the content of the newsletter going to be versus like, mm-hmm. what's my marketing? What's my, what's my accounting? What's any of this other stuff going to be? I'm like, well, it'll, it'll follow. I'll figure it out. Yeah. So like subscription, is that your like only way of monetizing your, your product right now? Or I guess like I'm not sure what the, the rules of Substack are if you're able to do any kind of like um, advertising or commerce kind of integrations in that. But are those like other things that you're kind of thinking about or is subscriptions your like key way of, of making money? Yeah, it's just subscriptions. I, I have no other plan on how to make money. I mean, and that's partially because I don't want to put my effort into that. Um, and also partially because it's working for it to be subscriptions. And as long as I have enough to live and save and grow, you know, I, cause I really want to, the priority for me is the content. So how do I make the content better? I get more people to work on the content. Um, and so as, as long as it's growing at the, keeps growing at the rate that it is growing, um, I'm on track to be able to hire somebody. Um, I do plan to do that this year. Uh, I'm really excited about that. And then if, if I hit a plateau, then I'll try to figure something else out. Um, if I'm not, making enough to be, if all of a sudden I'm not making enough to be able to support another person and then it doesn't look like eventually I'll be able to support another person, um, then I'll reassess, but I don't feel like I need to do it. 
so for the person that you're looking to hire, is that going to be like an editor, another writer? Like, what are you hoping for? Um, I'm hoping for it to be sort of in a, a what I would call an apprentice <laughs> position. Yeah. Um, I I don't. It's almost like with the subscription price where I want to be, I don't want to lock myself into something that I regret later. So I think what I'll start doing, I've never had an employee before. Um, Mm -hmm. I've never been anyone's boss in like a meaningful way before. Um, Like I've never been in charge of someone's payroll. I don't know what that means. So (laughs) I want it to start being just like a temporary position, maybe a couple months um, to see how it, how it works for me. Um, and, but what I want that person to do is help me report and help me write. Um, it's, I just want them to do the job I'm doing, but two of us. And then eventually, um, the big goal is that I would like that person to take over writing a lot of the newsletter so that I can go, I maybe do less of it. You know, it's a four day a week newsletter. Maybe they do too. I do too. Maybe then I hire another person and then maybe they do all of it. And then I go do another product um, because newsletters are only, I think the one thing about newsletters that I, I want to move past is that not everybody gets their news. Not everybody wants to get their news in an email. Not everybody wants to get their news. Not everybody wants to read their news. I mean, this is a podcast. A lot of people want to listen to things. A lot of people want to watch things. A lot of people want like a, a physical product. And so that's the most important thing to me is how do I get this climate change news that's presented in this way to the most amount of people? Um, how do I meet people where they are? And I, with a newsletter, I can meet only a certain number of people where they are. Um, And hopefully this model just allows me to steadily grow to a place where I can look elsewhere. Makes sense. I was going to ask you if you had um, started out testing any other mediums like, uh, I don't know, I feel like newsletters and podcasts kind of are very two sides of the same coin kind of thing. I feel like it's a very similar medium to a degree. Um, So yeah, I was curious about that. But um, I'm, I'm also curious, like, because newsletter companies have been just exploding this past couple of years now, like, are you hoping or do you see the opportunity to grow to the size of like the skim or morning brew, like some of those newsletter companies that um, I guess in the past like five years or so have really grown to like 30 plus employees, stuff like that. Like, are you hoping that that's kind of the trajectory or do you want to keep it, I don't know, closer to home? I want it to grow and I want it to be big. I I know that the trajectory of those companies, you know, those companies are not based in the same principle as mine is. And so I would love it to grow because, and what I really mean is like, this is a journalism project um, that is based very much in, like I said, those very romantic ideals of journalism and how it's supposed to serve populations and communities. And so the most important thing for me is to build it in a way that, in a way that keeps that goal at the center of it. You know, I don't want VC investors. I don't want, um, I want it to remain independent. Um, and so, yes, I do hope that it will grow. If it's, if it can grow to be that big, then it will prove, <laughs> then it will prove that all the, uh, idealized romantic notions of journalism in my head are not just fever dreams, but like, but like, you know, cause it, cause when you asked about, you know, 
are you looking for different um, revenue sources and stuff? Maybe, but I love subscription-based revenue sources. It just feels so, it feels so uh, ethical, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, that's the other thing, because like advertising in newsletters has been pretty consistently high, even when like advertising in media was down um, during the pandemic. But it's such like a, a hot area for advertising. And to a degree, like, I, I don't think it, advertising is unethical, but there is like, it's a different part of your brain that you have to use. I feel like you have to have like a different person working on that side of things because like you have to, they have to appeal to the, you know, advertisers and stuff. So I was curious, like if, if that was something you were thinking about, but at the same time, it's like, you know, maybe that is uh, a later game kind of thing just because you have to, that's a whole different part of the brain. That's a whole different part Adver- of the business, Advertising, you know? I mean, this is a different conversation, but I don't think that advertising is an ethical thing for a lot of news. Um, I think that mm-hmm. advertising is an, it's a, a very clear, transparent attempt to manipulate readers into buying things, into thinking a certain way about a brand, um, for that brand to make money. Right. And that's, you know, it's fine if you need that to support, if you need that to support your model. Um, but I cover advertising, right? I mean, that's a huge part of what I cover. I cover how so much of what I cover is how, um, fossil fuel companies use and car companies and plastic companies use advertising to manipulate people to believe things that are false. And, and the more that I cover that, the more I realize that that's, you know, unless the, unless the ad is just like, buy this shirt, it's a red shirt and it is a red shirt. Then it's the point of it is, is to not tell the truth. It's to get the reader to do something. And just fundamentally, I would like everything in my newsletter to just be the point of it is to get you to know what the truth is about this one thing. Um, I don't want any psychological manipulation happening in my newsletter. So no, there will, ne- there will never yeah. be an advertisement in the newsletter. <laughs> Gotcha. That fully fair. So many newsletter publishers have been focusing on that just because the rates have been really high. But I mean, that's if that's not what you want your product to be, like, why would you ever introduce it? So I, I totally understand that. Um, yeah, I guess I you also mentioned that you're growing at a pretty fast clip, a, a good like you have a good growth trajectory going on. Um, you mentioned your conversion rate, but like what I guess is your um month over month increasing in subscribers right now? Like what's your, I don't know, month to month growth if you, if you so track it that way? If, if you, it, it's been pretty consistent. However, now I'm just going through my first uh, churn as they call it. Um, so my first mm-hmm. year, uh, just of paid just st- happened, uh, in December. So it's yeah. only been two full months of recurring where I can really see if I'm growing at the same rate that I was last year. And to be honest, mm-hmm. I haven't really done the analysis to see like, am I still growing at the rate that I was growing last year? Because there's like a lot of momentum mm-hmm. at the beginning, right? As soon as, sure. it's almost like the, these two first two months are not good data for me because the first two months, December and January of last year, uh, fiscal year for me, um, they were very inflated because it was the first, the first two months. And that's where all of my growth was. And 
then for me to see, is it happening now? Like, is it the same now? It's, it's tough for me to tell because it's those same people renewing or not renewing, plus, uh, plus whoever's doing it right now. It's almost like I need a couple more months to really see. Now it's not just addition, it's subtraction, if that makes sense. Obviously, I'm not talking about it very well because I, I don't have a business brain, but it's like there are, there are people who are signing up and now there are people who are unsubscribing, which is like a thing I haven't had to deal with before. Um, and so I have to see like, what is the line look like? Um, and I don't know yet. Um, but it seems, I mean, the line is the overall line I know is still going up. I just don't know how much it's going up. Um, it seems to be definitely, it definitely seems to be slower than last year, but I don't know if that's significant. Um, I just don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or like what it is comparable to like other sub stacks and stuff like that. But yeah, that, that's totally, that makes sense. Like churn is, um, I don't know. I have a hard time understanding it myself and, but I end like, yeah, that is a big thing to think about too. And I'm tired. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to think about it. That's the worst part is that I really don't want to think about it. Like I do not have a deep desire and motivation to be like, how, what's my churn look like? I'm like, oh, I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, does the platform, like does Substack as a platform, like help with the tools on that end, like to make it somewhat easy to understand or like are you really kind of crunching the numbers on other platforms? No, they make it fairly easy. And I'm sure if I like needed help understanding, I could just email them and they would get on the phone with me in a minute. Um, they're very helpful, yeah. uh, especially, okay. I mean, like, especially for me, they've been super helpful because uh, I was, you know, I was early and I, on and I have like a relationship with them and uh, they've just been really wonderful. I just, again, it's the problem of being the, center of command for every single part I have mm-hmm. and having to rely on my own faults. Uh, yeah. Is that my, one of my biggest faults is that I have trouble asking people for help. Um, so, <laughs> so I have not asked them for help just because I'm like, I'll figure it yeah. out at some point. You're working for yourself. You're driving your own business. Like I, I get it. And there's a pandemic, you know, all that stuff. Oh my God. Yeah. That, we haven't even gotten into that, but yeah, that's just, if if you had a problem yeah. if you had a problem with not asking people for help before um think what isolation does to you <laughs> right i was curious though like in launching your product during the time when donald trump was president and the impact on like climate and the like that whole thing i had um the ceo of grist on an episode a few months ago and he kind of talked about you know running a a climate focused um, publication during that era it was launching during the Trump era and the subsequent impacts on the environment. Do you think that that helped to drive initial like interest um, off the bat or like because people were just angry all the time and wanted to know about it? Or do you think that like the time period that you launched in like do you ha- what kind of impact do you think that had? I mean, I launched in September of 2019, which was just so happened to be like the pinnacle center of hurricane and wildfire season. Um, and there are mm-hmm. climate disasters happening all across the country. And there were two climate change debates happening that were just about to happen on uh, CNN and MSNBC. Um, 
between the huge at the time Democratic presidential field, um, there was a lot of anti-climate action going on in the administration. Um, I didn't expect that to be a great time to launch a climate newsletter, but man, if you really are looking for a good time to um, do any launch anything climate related, I, this is the worst thing I've ever said in my life, but do it in August and September and October when the entire country is on fire and, and in flood. Mm-hmm. Um, and every single year it will be like that um, because those are the times when it, it is most on people's minds. Um, it's, it sucks as a climate change reporter to know that when, when is your, you know, is your news the most valuable? It's when people are already paying attention to that type of news, right? So it's like, okay, I guess during uh, fire and flood would be the time to launch a climate newsletter. I didn't know that at the time, um, <laughs> but it, it just so happened to line up. And I think it was less about you know the Trump administration and more about and more about people dying um, because the entire Trump administration was. Uh, like a, a climate disaster, right? Um, and so it allowed people to sort of become numb to that. Um, if anything, I think now it's a better time to be launching climate stuff because that's what the administration's new agenda is um, to actually do something about climate change. And it's not just this awful, um, hopeless endeavor that you just don't even want to think about because there's no chance at all that anything could be done. Now it's like you have a you have a real fight on your hands and that's the center of what journalism is supposed to be, right? It's conflict. And now there actually is conflict. There are people who who might actually pass climate policy and people who might actually prevent it. It's not an inevitability in the federal government. So and uh guess what? It's only a couple months away from hurricane season. Yeah. Last question. Um, what advice would you give like any reporters or editors or journalists that are thinking about setting out and doing like a sub stack? Because I know a lot of people are still um, contemplating that as a as a move. Do you think there's any kind of like specific skill sets that are needed to do this type of thing or like, I don't know, any advice? Um, I would say that if you're going to do it, um, it's definitely good to have had institutional experience before to know mm-hmm. um, what it takes to put out to put out timely, accurate, meaningful content through having lots of experience with mentors and bosses. Because once you become your own boss, every single fault that you have as a reporter is like sort of revealed. Um, and unless you have those, unless you have that experience of those voices of your editors in the back of your head, um, you're not going to catch them. And you have to be really willing to self-criticize and self-reflect and and be the person that says, I made a mistake, because nobody's going to do it for you anymore. Um, and journalism is so, doing good journalism is so much about trust and that network of trust that you build with your readership community. And so you have to be willing to to admit when you make mistakes uh, number one. And and it's hard to know that you're going to make a mistake if you haven't been under the gun of 
of editors for many years. That's one. I would say number, number two is to, um, launch something that you're, that you care about and that you're really passionate about and make that the focus of most of your work. Cause there's going to be a hundred other doorbells ringing in your ear all the time. Like you, we were talking about marketing, accounting, design, um, what the title is going to be. All that stuff is all, they should all be much quieter in your head than what is the work that I'm putting out with this. Um, and that's gonna, that is gonna ring louder to people and get people to sign up more than any of that other fancy stuff. Um, newsletters, when, when you are running the whole thing, the entire business, there's so many things pull on your, uh, strings for priority. You know, they're like, I gotta do this, I gotta do this, I gotta do this, and you're not gonna be able to do all of it. So like, what's your priority? It should always be the content. Um, the other thing is under promise. Uh, under promise what you're going to deliver. Uh, you can always deliver more once you lock people in with money um, and you have a community. It's very hard to deliver less. Um, you, I, I just have this problem with being such an optimistic person and, and I want to deliver so much quality content all the time. Um, and, and I'm like, I should be operating at 100%. If I like assume in my business plan that I'm going to operate at 100% capacity at all times as a human being. And that's very hard to do now, especially. Um, assume that you're going to operate at 50% all the time and promise that. And then when you, and then when you over deliver, you're going to look awesome. That's what I would do. That third yeah. one is what I would do if I could start over. Thank you so much for being on the podcast and for chatting with me about this. It's really, truly fascinating. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It was fun. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Digiday Podcast. Thank you to everyone for listening. And please don't forget to share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. You can even rate us and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts if you like. We'll be back next week with another episode.